So uh, Hebrews chapter 11, the previous chapter, most of us know is referred to as the hall of faith. So you have just all of these tremendous examples from biblical history of individuals who knew the Lord, trusted the Lord, grew in their faith over time. And the Lord holds them up to us as examples to say, look at the conduct of these individuals. Look at the struggles they had. Look at what they went through. See how they trusted me. See what I did in their lives. The evidence of my existence and the evidence of my work in their lives. And then you come to chapter 12, and he says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So, in light of all of those biblical examples, He's saying, now, there are those who have incorrectly taught that this cloud of witnesses that he's referring to are spectators to our race, and they're watching us with critical judgment, that those who existed before us are watching us to see whether we're going to follow their example, and if we don't, then they're going to sort of have a sneering response to our failures. That's not what the Scripture is saying at all. Number one, it's completely out of character with God. His whole function is love and encouragement towards the success of His children. He's going to talk about that here. The idea is these that have gone before us have already run the race. And they exist as witnesses as to how to run the race. And then he gives us the direct, if I mistakenly say Paul as being the author of Hebrews, it's my personal opinion that Paul is the author of Hebrews. We don't know who it is, but I'm so hung up on my own opinion that I'll periodically say Paul you know, said this or that. So forgive me in advance for that. I nearly said it just there. So the author of Hebrews is telling us that the example they've given us is that we would lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Now, you know, if you've seen runners, you know, those that especially compete in, you know, the top echelon of marathons and things of that nature, you know, they're, they're wearing like less than an ounce of clothing, sneakers included, you know what I'm saying? They have laid aside every weight. <clears throat> their, their, their clothing is streamlined. It's designed to let the air flow through it. They want every element of speed that they can accomplish. My daughter was in a swimming competition years ago, and they would wear two or three very ragged outfits on top of their swimsuits during practice, that it would drag. And they would learn to swim with all that extra drag, slowing them down so that when it came time for competition and they're in that super smooth, you know, glide designed, resistant designed 
you know, swim outfit, they just seem to shoot through the water like a bullet. Okay, the, the idea here is even more than that. You wouldn't see a marathon runner who not only <clears throat> is he out there in you know his winter jacket and his snow pants on, but he's got a backpack on and he's got two or three 45 plates in there from the gym that he's just decided to... If he's going to go run a marathon, he's shed all of that. Nothing is there to encumber him. This, this is what the author is saying, that the examples set before us tell us to shed everything that would slow us down, particularly sin. Get rid of the things that are going to slow you down in your relationship, your race through this life. It's going to already have enough challenges without adding difficulties to it. Verse 2, looking unto Jesus. So the real example, you know, yes, you have these witnesses, but looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has set down at the right hand of the throne of God. No greater example of victory than Jesus Christ in that case. You know, for all of these examples previously, right? I'm always astonished as I read Hebrews chapter 11, and there Samson is listed amongst them. You know, you're left like, good grief, anybody can make it. You don't say it just, you know, these are the examples. Here's a guy who failed so miserably, and yet, you know, he was used by the Lord. He was God's anointed servant. You know, here, the prime example being Jesus, I like the fact that it talks about him being the author, the beginner and the completer of our faith. You know, how many times have we quoted uh, Philippians 1.6 where Paul said to the church at Philippi, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it even unto the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you've surrendered to the Lord and you've begun to walk with him, wherever you are along the way in your maturity, if you've become discouraged, if you're looking at your current status thinking, well, I'm a failure, understand that it's the Lord who's going to complete you across that finish line. He is the one who began the process, and he's going to mature the process, and he's going to finish the process in you. We do have to cooperate with that, like it says in the previous verse, shedding the sin that would so easily beset us. Now, he endured the cross, a great picture of you know, our sin, our struggle. He endured you know, bearing the sin of the world as he went to the cross, despising the shame. You know, that's important because there are those things that you know, are shameful about our own conduct. And Jesus, as he embraced the sin of the world, he despised the shame that was in the process. We need to have that. There's an old statement that blushing is a sign of virtue. You know, people today act like there's something wrong with an individual that would blush at the coarse remarks or the foul language. There was a time in our culture where that was thought to be a, a, an admirable quality when an individual would be embarrassed by sinfulness. The more 
that we move forward into the sinfulness of our culture, the more our culture celebrates it. You know, it has a parade for it to go out and show the world. This is the rebellion we live in, defiantly proclaiming. That's not what the Lord has called his children to. Now, verse 3, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. I think that our mind most easily and most automatically goes to our own sin, and it should, right? You know, striving against sin. This is also referring to other people's sin and the sin of the world. We're, we're going to have to resist and we're going to have to endure sin. As long as we're on this planet, we're going to have to contend with this. And it can be very discouraging as we have to deal with our own struggles and then other people's struggles affecting us. And then at large, the sinfulness of the world just infecting and affecting all that we experience in life. He's saying don't become discouraged with that. Jesus Christ literally embraced all of the sin of all of the world. A sinless man took that all upon himself in order to go to the cross. And, and the, what a marvelous example. As, as they're crucifying him, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We need to be continuously in process of functioning, saying the same things. Father, forgive, forgive me. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive us. We don't know what we're doing. The, the weariness that can come upon us really does discourage the soul. If we allow that to permeate our person, it can bring us down completely. Look at verse 5. He says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Now, chastening is a term that has been lost, something that isn't used in our culture. We, we think of, you know, all discipline as somehow being negative. You know, chastening was an old term that enveloped a great deal regarding instruction. You know, your father, if you had a good father, a loving father, would have been teaching you and guiding you. And correction might as, you know, been as, Simple as, hey, we don't do that. Let's always do it this way. And it might have also included spankings. You know, so, so chastening is broad. It isn't just that God is poised on the edge of a cloud with a very sharp lightning bolt waiting for the moment where you screw up so he can just pierce you to the surface of the earth. That's not what's being described. This is a loving Father, our Heavenly Father, who's saying, I need to sharpen and mold and correct and guide and discipline this child of mine in order that they would be fulfilled 
and fruitful and happy, joyful and content. Right? Uh, I don't need a show of hands, right? We've probably all experienced that the sinfulness in our life produces pain, suffering, and sorrow. God correcting us to help us leave those things is Him saying, that all hurts you. Let me show you a way that provides you with joy without the suffering. Chastening is not a negative thing. It's a very positive thing. Don't be discouraged. For, verse 6, whom the Lord loves... He chases and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. If you're going through discipline and correction, if in life you can look and say, yep, God is not letting me get away with things. If you can say that for what son is there whom a father does not chasten, but if you are without chastening, of which all have be- all believers have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. If God's not correcting you, if you're getting away with it, if you're not getting in trouble, then you need to seriously question yourself about whether you're a child of God. That's what he's saying very directly. The King James says it much more harshly than that. Says it in such a way that makes it unmistakably clear you're either his son or you're not you're either his daughter or you are not and the evidence is is his correction right i think every single one of us has been in a public location where some child was misbehaving you know in a very flamboyant way and you're thinking i could step in here and fix this whole problem but hopefully you didn't why because they're not your child Right? You can recognize the need, but not my kid. Right? There have been occasions where, you know, our children, when they were very young, misbehaved that way in public, and okay, we are done grocery shopping, pal. We're all leaving the store together. You know? I was crazy enough when I was very young, one of my children pitched an absolute hysterical fit in the middle of the grocery store. You know, shove the cart, embarrass my wife, throw herself on the floor, start screaming. When I threw myself on the floor and started screaming, that child sprang right to her feet. And I sprang right to my feet. And we just looked at one another really odd for a minute. And I said, are we done? And they were like, oh, yeah. 20-something-year-old guy just slammed himself down on the floor started kicking and screaming. That was chastening. I was correcting my child in my own weird way that we don't do this. You you know, look at how you, you, oh, you're embarrassed? Oh, I'm very sorry. Imagine how we feel. See, God does this with us. Sometimes it's not just the heavy hand. Sometimes it's in these sort of peculiar ways. You got to pay attention to where the correction's coming from. The Lord will correct us if we belong to him. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Listen, 
Uh, my father was killed, as you most of you well know, when I was four years old. Uh, there were fathers in my life along the way that disciplined me and corrected me. You know, if my seventh grade teacher, Kim Reese, is listening, thank you very much. That man was hard, hard on me, and he was the best teacher I ever had. He refused to let me fail. He refused to let me get by. He was right there. He, he met me at my rebellion, and he guided me through it. Others, I know they thought they were being loving when they gave me all the understanding in the world and let me slip by, and I ruined myself with the process. Those that stepped in as guiding forces, like fathers, they, those that were good and, and kind and loving in the process, oh, they are appreciated. If we showed them respect, right? I showed Kim Reese that respect when I was in seventh grade, and I'm showing him that same respect right now as a man who served me well through his discipline and his guidance. If, if we understand that value, how much more the Father of Spirits that God would guide us and minister to us. Verse 10, For they indeed, for a few days, you know, comparison to their life, just a short period of time that we lived with them, chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. God corrects us for our benefit, right? Like I described, you know, embarrassing my child in order that they would get the point. That was honestly about benefiting me, right? I was, I was correcting them. I mean, I wanted them to gain the benefit also, but it was about me getting the benefit of how am I going to teach this child to stop doing this? To just uh, that was for my benefit. The Lord does it completely for our benefit. His guidance and correction. And think about that. We often look at God's correction, guidance, discipline as having the least benefit to us. We look at it like this is doing nothing but harm to me when really we're the only one that's receiving the benefits. We're the ones that he's doing it for, that we'd be partakers of his holiness. Wow, nothing more valuable than God's holiness. His holiness become part of my life? Oh, that's bound to make things dramatically better. That I would follow the life that he intends for me. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It doesn't seem joyful, right? James chapter 1, James says, consider it pure joy whenever you're faced with trials of many kinds. Consider it. It isn't going to be joyful. You have to consider it joyful because of the outcome because of what it produces in our life. It yields the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness isn't just righteousness. There's a fruitfulness that comes from righteousness. 
you know, what the Lord has produced in my life today through His holiness, through His righteousness, it's invaluable. Not only to me, my family, loved ones, friends, to you. The righteousness of Christ working in me, working in you, is very fruitful to anyone who would be trained by it. If we'll learn from it, it yields that fruit. A parallel passage, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, verse 13, but rejoice to the extent that you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Christ's sufferings, right? When, when we hit the trials, we often simply equate it to sinfulness. And in fact, it's very different. Once we begin to walk in fellowship with Christ, in His holiness and His righteousness, what you're going to find is the world begins to hate you. They begin to reject you. They begin to revile you. You begin to become persecuted simply for existing. This is what Christ went through. See, Christ didn't suffer in life. The sufferings of Christ, but when He suffered on the cross, He was suffering for my sake. For your sake. When he went through life and they despised him, hated him, reviled him, spit on him, beat him, that was all for who he was. Simply for being holy, being righteous. Right? You don't have to walk around, you know, condemning the world, pointing out their sin, calling them evil at all. If you simply don't participate in what they do, they're going to despise you for it. Your testimony convicts them. Your life convicts them for the fact that I don't live that way. I walk with Christ. My life is different than that. Look at verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees in light of the benefit, in light of how the trials produce righteousness and fruitfulness strengthen what is weak support what is failing in ourselves and in one another right when when we see one another going through the challenges the difficulties the struggles the trials encourage one another in those things and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. You know, make the path as smooth and as straight as possible. We start following after our flesh, getting off the path that the Lord has pointed us onto, stumbling in our sin, you know, falling because of our desire to be accepted by the people and the, the circumstances of the world. We start making the path crooked. And that which is weak can become completely out of joint. You know, where before there was, you know, sort of a mild uh, 
misconduct. Now it becomes very obvious and profound. Once a person really begins to stumble off the path of following the Lord. It's a treacherous thing. We want to be very careful of these things. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now it's impossible to live in peace with all people, right? Good time of year to talk about that. You know, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That verse is misquoted. It's, you know, peace on earth toward men of goodwill. Those who desire to follow the Lord will experience the peace of the Lord. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I'm going to set members of a household at war with one another. They're going to hate one another. They're going to fight with one another. Not because of our sinful personalities, but because, as I said, walking in righteousness is going to convict people of their sin. Paul put it most accurately, as much as is possible, live peaceably with all men, as much as it's up to you, as much as it is your responsibility, as much as you have an influence over the circumstance, live peaceably with everyone. If you can't, you know, make sure that it's not because of your failures, that if they're going to, you know, hate you, despise you, then that has to be their business. Verse 15, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Let us, uh, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. It's an interesting thing that within the body of Christ, bitterness is so common. You, you look around the church and you, you might not find other sins so prevalent within the church, and yet bitterness is. And people will become bitter, and then all kinds of other sin becomes manifest in their life. And, you know, you, you try to deal with the situation, and they'll, they'll act like, well, you know, I'm not punching people in the face anymore. You know, I'm not stealing money. I'm not using drugs. Right. But you're bitter with your brother. Bitter with your sister. And now look what it's producing in your life. We need to guard our hearts very carefully. You know, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this many become many become defiled. It affects a lot of people. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Something that his flesh desired. He gave up the birthright. And there's a connection to where we're currently studying normally in our Sunday morning services. Jacob and Esau. These men who, you know, one was pursuant of the Lord and the fact that God was going to bring the Messiah through him and through his family. His older brother Esau despised the birthright. He didn't want anything to do with it. He hated all of that religious stuff that his you know, grandfather and father had participated in. And that's what the scripture says. He despised it. He hated it. You know, it tells us here, and you know, just a moment for you know at, that afterward, once he had gotten rid of the birthright, he gave it to his brother, when he wanted 
to inherit the blessing, right? He wants he wants the inheritance. He wants the 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 earthly benefits. He doesn't want any of the spiritual responsibility. It says he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Be very clear. What he sought with tears was the inheritance, not repentance. Esau didn't want to turn from his sin, right? Metanoia, change your thinking. Turn your mind around. Go the opposite direction. That's what repentance means. He did not want to repent. He he wanted to go the way of his sinfulness, pursue the things of his flesh, continue to fornicate and sin. He wanted to go that direction, but he also wanted the blessings of the Lord. He sought the blessings of the Lord diligently, but he refused to repent. Read it again. He found no place for repentance. Right? Today is the day of repentance. You can always repent. You can always turn around and go the other way. Not Esau. He refused it. Look at verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest. Now this is referring to when Moses went up on Sinai and received the Ten Commandments, the law from God. The entire nation of Israel gathered around the bottom. They're going to describe how the Laws were set forward about don't approach the mountain, don't touch the mountain. And they heard the great blast of God's voice and became fearful and said, you know, you go up and talk to him, Moses. We can't handle this. If we have to listen to God anymore, we're going to die. So here he's saying, you've not come to that mountain, verse 19, and the sound of trumpets, the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure that what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, the great support of God, God reaching down to man, Mount Zion, you know, Jesus Christ dying in Golgotha, bringing salvation from heaven to humanity. You haven't come to the mountain where God blasts his law out and creates this terrifying fear in everyone. That's not what you're experiencing, the author of Hebrews is saying. You're instead experiencing the mountain where heaven has reached down to bring you God's grace. Heaven has reached down to bring you Jesus' salvation. That's where you've come. In light of the witnesses, the chapter 11 Hall of Faith, set aside the weights that would burden you and keep you from running. You're not in a terrifying place of God's presence. You're in His encouragement and guidance his chastening to make you successful. You're surrounded by the angels who want to support you in this circumstance. The general assembly and church of the firstborn, that's referring to Jesus, 
It doesn't mean first in order. It means first in importance. The one who exceeds everyone else in the body of Christ, who is, excuse me, who are registered in heaven, speaking to us as having our names written in the book of life, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkling of blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel was trusting the Lord and offering the sacrifices of the lambs to the Lord, and Cain hated him and put him to death. The sprinkling of the blood of sacrifices began in the Bible with Abel. Now there's a more superior sprinkling of the blood, which began with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he sweat great drops of blood and then was beaten and droplets of blood and then scourged and droplets of blood and then crucified droplets of blood until piercing of his side where water and blood gushed out. Superior to all the sacrifices offered previously is Jesus Christ and his divine sacrifice. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. These voices that are spoken of, you have the voice of Jesus, you have the voice of God first at Mount Sinai. We just saw the terrifying voice of God from the Old Testament. Then you have the voice of the Heavenly Father saying of Jesus, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. Then you have the voice of Jesus throughout His ministry. And now the Lord is saying, Hear what Jesus has to say. If we can't listen, you know, here we are this morning reading God's Word. If we can't listen to what was recorded of Jesus teaching in ministry on earth, then we have to accept what was said from heaven about Jesus. That His voice is the one that should be heard. The beginning of Hebrews, this is in chapter 12, sort of a pinnacle moment, because Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, starts by saying, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Jesus Christ is the one we must listen to, both on earth and from heaven. His voice must be obeyed. Verse 27. Now, this yet once more, quote-unquote, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that is, by men, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace 
by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, how is this a year-end message? What are we doing with all of this? Everything's being shaken, if you hadn't noticed. The world around us, even our very own lives, are being shaken to the core. And what is not built upon Jesus Christ is going to tremble. It's going to crack. It's going to fall apart. Only what is built on Jesus Christ will remain. What did Jesus say, right? The foolish man who heard Jesus' words but did not heed them was like the fool who built his house on sand. And the storms came and beat upon that house, and the house fell, and how mighty was its fall. But the one who heard Jesus' words and built his life upon those words was one who was founded upon the rock. The evidence of what you're built upon is the enduring through the trials. You know, this God is a consuming fire. Uh, you know, for the person who doesn't know the Lord, that sounds fearful. For those of us that know the Lord, we should immediately think of God being a refining fire. He burns away the things that are useless. He burns away the things that are destructive in our lives. And what does he leave? Gold, gems, precious silver. He refines that which is his own. He doesn't even right take the diamond and the rough and live with that in satisfaction. He cleans it. He cuts it. He makes it of greater value. The Lord is constantly refining, chastening, disciplining, guiding, growing that which belongs to him. As we look around the world, and you might look at the stock market with fearful and trepidation. What's going to happen to the dollar? You may look at the news coming out of Israel and Syria right now and think, is this going to be World War III? What I can tell you is, let it all shake. Let it thrash around. Because what is going to be left, what is going to remain, is going to be so much more valuable. Let the Lord refine your life. Let him discipline you that you would grow and experience his maturity. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, we are so grateful for your love. The way that you work in our help us to cooperate with you, Lord. It is fearful. It is difficult. It's not easy. Give us your strength, Lord. We hit those moments and we would just want to give up. Lord, help us to focus our face upon yours. To look straight into your word. To read, to study, to pray, to be in fellowship. That we would not be brought low. That the things you want to remove from our lives would be shaken out. Would be taken out. That your will would be accomplished in us and through us. Guide us. Use us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
We uh, always want you to stay 